Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're hearing from inside Ukraine. I'm joined from Kiev by Dr. Dmitro Nataluka, who's head of the Economic Affairs Committee of the Ukrainian Parliament. I met Dmitro at a dinner in Munich the weekend before the war broke out. He was an impressive man, chatting to me in fluent English and to others around the table in French and Italian. I even remember how he looked dressed in a tweed jacket with a pocket handkerchief and a neatly trimmed beard. It was a very pleasant evening, but the subject matter was dark. I was pretty sure, based on other conversations at the Munich Security Forum, that Russia was poised to attack Ukraine. As I recall, Dmitro was far from convinced that full-scale war was imminent. Either way, he was determined to get back to Kiev. In the six weeks since then, as wars raged in Ukraine... I've often wondered how Dmitro Nataluka was doing. So I was delighted to talk to him this week and to discover firsthand what's the current mood in Kiev. All Russian forces have pulled back from the capital. And as they receded, life here today returned. People out, listening to music, soldiers taking a break, Ukrainians doing what's been so rare these days. Smiling. Russia's troops are no longer directly threatening the Ukrainian capital, but the war in the east of the country looks set to intensify, and horrifying evidence of Russian war crimes keeps emerging, with many eyewitness accounts of the deliberate mass killing of civilians in towns like Bucha. And just to warn, this episode contains descriptions that some listeners may find disturbing. As Ukrainian forces have re-entered areas close to the capital, Kiev, after the Russians retreated, they have reported finding hundreds of bodies and mass graves. The town of Bucha is the scene of what some here are describing as a massacre. Dozens of bodies lie on the road. Residents say the retreating Russians shot anyone they found. Bodies of civilians in the streets, some with their hands and feet bound, who had been shot. However... The Ukrainian government has been buoyed by military victories and international support. It also faces the prospect of more brutal fighting. As Russia shifts its offensive to East Ukraine, the Chechen leader is promising that Russian troops will seize Kyiv. The president, Mr Zelensky, says that Moscow is preparing for an even larger assault. Before I got onto the prospects for the war and the Ukrainian economy, I started my conversation with Dmitro Nataluka by asking about his experiences as a Ukrainian and a politician. What's happened to him in the six weeks since the two of us met up in Munich? So, of course, I went back to Kiev on the night of the 24th. It, it all started. And you've been in Kiev for the six weeks since then. Is the atmosphere now 
at least in Kiev, a little bit more relaxed because there's a sense that the Russians for now have given up on trying to take the capital city. Yes, it's very much different from the first couple of weeks because in the first couple of weeks, uh, it was crazy, literally. I mean, Kiev uh, is a rather big city. Uh, It's a metropolis in, in a way. And just imagine opening the window in the middle of the day or then in the middle of the night in the first or the second week of the war. And if there are no gunshots and no explosions, you literally hear nothing. Meaning that all the cars, all the pedestrians, everything that was producing this noise of the city, you know, the the sound of the city, uh, was gone. So it it was a crazy feeling, absolutely. It it gave me shivers because uh, I couldn't have even imagined, never, ever, that I might hear this void of Kiev. Now it's it's totally different. Uh, People are are still returning to Kiev, a lot of cars now, a lot of people on the streets, cafes, restaurants being reopened. So we see that that life is back and uh, we don't hear that void anymore. But the, the situation is drastically different from what it was. And did you, to be honest, fear that, you know, any day the Russians would break through and be in the center of the city? Oh, very much, of course. Of course. I mean, I, I suppose only a madman wouldn't wouldn't fear during wartime and i mean in the first couple of weeks it was very intense in terms of air raid sirens uh you hear shots all the time and uh yeah i mean it was constantly troubling and uh, very uh very frightening to be honest i mean i'm not ashamed to say it because you know it's not that we were prepared for such situation no, <laughs> we, were, we were prepared for something different, but in the end, were we? Of course, you, you, you're getting used to that in a way. After some time, you start to recognize whether one sound is a bombardment or air defense missile has hit something. Uh, then you recognize whether this was a shot from an automatic gun or from a short gun. So, I mean, this is crazy, the, the skills you get. Uh, I'm not sure I would need them anymore. I hope I wouldn't. But still, I mean, as time passes and you are in the middle of this, in the epicenter of this events, you start to discover absolutely new skills and new kind of feelings. So that was a fascinating description of the atmosphere in the city. But in normal times, you have a very responsible job. You're head of the Economic Committee of the Parliament. Has there been any politics as usual, any parliamentary activity, or has that all just been suspended? No, no, we... We kept the parliament going. Um, This was critically important to send the proper signal to the population that Kyiv is working, that the MPs have not left the cities. I mean, not all of them. (laughs) And and, uh, that the state institutions are in place and they're working. Because as you might remember from the very beginning, the main objective was to take down the government. And... um, Obviously, it was crucially important for us to show to the Ukrainians that we as government are still in place, are still working, and we we have not left the city, we have not left Ukraine, uh, we have not left our duties, and uh, we are willing to fight with our fellow citizens as much as they are ready to do it. So um, we held a number of hearings in the House, uh, I mean, in the, in the Parliament, in the first couple of weeks of war, and that was frightening as hell, I might tell you. 
because uh, when you gather 380 MPs in one place, which is not even, you know, um, it's not a bunker. It's the same building where we usually sit in and everybody knows the address <laughs> and everybody knows this place. I mean... So you must have been thinking that at any moment the Russians could hit you with a cruise missile, basically. Oh, by, by all means, of course. I mean, especially the first time, I think it, this was the second week of war, when uh, it was still unclear what is happening and what will happen. It's not that it's clear right now, but uh, <laughs> back then it was even worse. And I, I would like to remind you that the second week of war, Kiev was near to be encircled. And uh, they were shelling hard on the suburbs and even in the center of Kiev. So, yeah, for us showing up there in the parliament and spending there an hour, literally, and I think like the whole world knew about this. Uh, I mean, by all means, the Russian intelligence knew about this because you can't hide this when at least uh, half of a thousand of people know about this. Yeah, this was crazy, but still, uh, we kept going on. We we decided to do it, and uh, we showed up in the parliament. We voted for for the legislation, and I think for the population, it was incredibly important. Now, as you say, the immediate threat of Kiev being taken has gone, but you discovered a kind of new horror, which is the massacres that were taking place in the small towns around Kiev. How are people coping with that, and how has it affected their view of the war? I might say that this was a game changer, a major game changer, Bucha especially, because until then we had this negotiations, not even negotiations, I would say consultations with the Russian side. And uh, some part of the population was relieved in a way to hear that, you know, some kind of consensus is being searched for. But after Bucha, even the most anti-war people have changed their mind completely because what we have seen there and what the whole world has seen there is total massacre. I mean, this is something beyond human comprehension of violence and brutality. So people have been literally executed uh, for merely having a tattoo with some Ukrainian insignia. Um Another thing is how badly they raped and they butchered the, the women. And then they realized that was a, a crime and it was a military crime. And uh, they tried to burn the bodies. And we have found numerous spots of bodies of young women that were put on fire. So, I mean, the level of brutality and of this bloodthirst and of this violence was so crazy that it changed the whole perception of war and of, of the enemy. So now a lot of my friends who are, who are fighting there um, on the front line, and they say, like, how can we perceive Russians now to be our, like, proper adversary? We perceive them as barbarians, and we perceive them as, as, as something we need to get rid of because then we will help the planet, not only Ukraine, <laughs> because people like this should not exist. Because, I mean, those, those are not even humans. Yeah. So now the war has moved away largely to the east. What is your feeling and the feeling of Ukrainian politicians, people in the government, about what lies ahead in the conflict? I think that it's far from over. So you see, um, Putin is a symbolist. And uh, for him, 
The 9th of May is a very symbolic date, and uh, it's approaching, and uh, I think this is the biggest holiday in Russia. So what we are expecting is some major offensive uh, by that date, and um, he needs, he badly needs something to demonstrate that he has achieved at least something in Ukraine, because as of today, there's not that much to show to the population, and the population is getting worried, I mean, the Russian population. Yeah, I I mean, we've heard a lot about losses on the Russian side. What's the situation on the Ukrainian side, though? I mean, you must have been taking heavy losses, too. Do you feel that there's any risk to your ability to keep fighting on? I would say that what we have on our side is a very strong morale, and that is a crucial and the most critical difference, because in Ukraine, everybody understands what we are fighting for. In terms of the Russians, it's very interesting because I think that this is probably the last European country, if not a world country, that openly wages an imperialistic war. So Russia, as you say, is is kind of an anachronism uh, in its its willingness to, to wage an imperial war against Ukraine. And you have higher morale on your side, but can you keep the fight up? I, I understand the morale point, but do you have enough in terms of weaponry, men? Uh, and, and what is the state of the economy, which I know is your particular preoccupation as, as head of the Economic Committee? I would say that we have enough to keep the defense uh, and to launch limited counteroffensives. But we would definitely need more support, more weaponry and more offensive weaponry specifically, to launch an efficient liberation attack and to quickly liberate the now temporary occupied territories. And do those territories in your mind include Crimea, which of course Russia occupied in 2014? Of course. By all means. Yeah, I can see if you're sitting in Kiev, that's, as you say, a question of of course. But do you think you'll get support from the West if you not only take the fight from the Donbass, but into Crimea? No, but I mean, uh, look at it from a different perspective. So, uh, for instance, the so-called Luhansk National People's Republic or whatsoever has recently declared that they are considering to hold a referendum, like Crimea style, to enter and to become a part of Russian Federation. And if that takes place, what will happen then is that formally they're changing the legal status of the territory. And formally, again, Russia might be entitled to say, now from from this moment, this is Russian territory. And the, the thing is that there's not a single state, Western value state, that has recognized Crimea to be a Russian territory. And I think you will have the same situation, hypothetically, with the Luhansk territory. So does that mean that we are not supposed to liberate the Luhansk territories that a couple of weeks ago still was officially Ukrainian territory that is temporarily controlled by some terrorists? I don't think so. And tell me about the economy as well, because again, thinking back to Munich, you were already worried even before the invasion about the pressure that was being put on the economy by the fear of invasion. The destruction has been absolutely enormous. Is the economy still functioning? And how much will it take to put it back together again? The economy is still functioning, in a way, of course, uh, even though 
the, the numbers are very troubling. Uh, the economy has shortened to, I think, at least 45% by now. And I would expect us to lose, I think, at least 50% of the GDP. We have different sectors that have literally ceased to exist. And um, the situation is really bad because also they have blocked our maritime routes and all the ports. And uh, this means that they blocked basically the main route for export. Now we're trying to replace it with railway and uh, roads, but it's not an easy task. So, yeah, the, the good news, though, is that we were able to relocate a rather impressive numbers of critical industries and critical companies and infrastructure to different regions of Ukraine that are not being attacked at the moment. But still, given the fact that we have at least 4 million people who left Ukraine and another, I think, up to 6 million people who are internally displaced, this means that the workforce is also wandering somewhere. It will be really, really a hard challenge to rebuild it. And I see, I have no illusions that we would need some external help with this. I can see, I mean, in, in a situation as dramatic as this, it must be hard to live beyond, you know, the day-to-day survival. But do you imagine this going on for many more months and years? Do you have a vision of when you might be able to get back to something that was more like pre-war Ukraine? Or is that impossible to imagine right now? I personally think that this war might keep on going for months, unfortunately, because Russia doesn't care about its human resources at, at all. They are ready to send to Ukraine as much people as they need, regardless their age, their skills, and even their willingness to, to come here. This is the first factor. Um, another thing is that the weaponry is not coming as fast as we wanted to arrive to Ukraine. And for this reason, it takes time to liberate specific cities. And um, some cities, we're losing them simply because we are waiting for some arms and for some equipment to arrive that might have been instrumental in keeping those cities Ukrainian. Another thing is that Russia somehow adopted to the sanctions that have been imposed by the partners. And the fourth factor, of course, is that Russian economy is under pressure by the sanctions, but it's still not destroyed as the Ukrainian economy is. This is like critically different because one thing is that you cannot trade with some of your ex-partners and um, some of the former markets you used to trade with. Another thing, you cannot literally physically trade because you have nothing to trade with. You know what I'm trying to say? So these four factors uh, are crucial in understanding that the war is far from over, as I said. So we are expecting, of course, uh, optimistically, some kind of a black swan, but I think this is uh, just, uh, in a way, some kind of wishful thinking. That was Dmitro Nataluka of the Ukrainian Parliament speaking from Kiev and ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for joining us, and please join me again next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.